Thanks, Tim. Well, uh, good to be together. Uh, great to gather. Uh, just a quick thing before we do start to let you know, I, I, we have passed on news that Jeff Bolt, a member of our congregation, uh, passed away uh, Friday week back, um, very sad, but um, after an illness. And I wanted to let you know that, uh, I mean, sad, it's a sadness for us, of course, but he was a follower of Christ, he knew Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, and so has been welcomed into eternity, and so we rejoice in that. Uh, this coming Friday at 10 o'clock in the uh, seminar room up here, there'll be a Thanksgiving service, and the family, Jeff's family, would love you to come and join uh, in Thanksgiving for his life, grieve with them, of course, too, and celebrate and give thanks for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So if you want to be part of that, this Friday, 10 o'clock. How about I pray? Father, we, we do come conscious of the uh, many terrible and dreadful things that happen in our world. We, uh, we pray, please, that you would comfort the family of uh, Jeff, that they would find great confidence and hope in the assurance that being in Jesus, he is now with you. We pray for us gathered here that as we consider again this very word that's brought such um, a future hope and a certainty and a confidence, we pray that you might stir us to know you better, uh, to love you more, to find the joy and celebration that is found in the things of Christ. Let that be uh, the case amongst us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're coming towards the end of this great book, the book of Hebrews. Uh, as you know, it's um, not just a book, it's a sermon. It's a recorded sermon from the first century, uh, something of an insight into what happened in the churches, of course, and the kind of messages they heard. And um, as we come to the end of it, uh, we come down to this last part of chapter 12, which is effectively, uh, I would offer, the climax of the sermon. There's another chapter to come, and we'll look at that next week, chapter 13, but it kind of wraps up various bits and pieces. This is the week, really, where you feel like the preacher is landing his sermon, where he's bringing it uh, to its close and climax with the people he's speaking to, he's driving it home. And I want to offer this thought. I want to suggest that there's an emotion that he plays on, that's flavoured through this section, the final climactic section of his sermon, and I want to suggest that emotion is the emotion of fear. Fear. Now, perhaps that is putting it a little too starkly. There are other emotions that are involved, and I'll show you those in a moment. But the fact is he uses the word fear at the very end of the chapter. Uh, verse uh, 28, you'll see there the language that we need to be thankful, worship God acceptably with reverence. Now, the NIV translates it awe, but the Greek word there can be translated fear and other translations do translate it as fear. Um, he, he is speaking about the whole idea of fear. It is certainly there for Christians. Uh, he is speaking these things. Um, I'm conscious, though, throughout the chapter 2 that he triggers the emotion a number of times, not in a manipulative way. I want to show you how he does it with great care and great seriousness. And as I say, it's not the only emotion. We'll see in verse 22 to 24, he, he touches on the emotion, well, digs deep into the emotions of joy, celebration, thanksgiving. But even there, he seems to focus on those emotions to trigger the, the emotion of fear. And, and I want us to come to these things. Now, saying all of this is tricky because I fear many of us think to talk about fear as Christians is somehow beneath us. We live in a cultural context where we've decided that fear is a very bad motive. It's a very inappropriate, it's kind of a primitive, childish thing to play on. And so many of us might find the thought that the Bible talks about fear and talks about fear for Christians. Uh, we might find ourselves thinking, oh, that's beneath 
my understanding of Christianity and the Christian faith. But is it? Is fear a dreadful thing? Is fear a terrible thing? Is it an inappropriate thing? I was going to give you a whole philosophy of fear right at this moment. I was, uh, yesterday I was sort of working on what I was going to talk to you about today and, uh, and during all of that I went upstairs to the kitchen where uh, some of our family, adult, adult family were around, uh, sitting around the kitchen bench as Cathy was uh, doing some stuff in the kitchen and she'd put some banana bread, uh, you know those big chunks of banana bread you can get, stuck them into the toaster pushed it down to the toaster and it didn't pop up again when the uh, toasting had finished and so she went to the drawer pulled out a knife and wandered over to the toaster while she was chatting to all of us and began to stick the knife into the toaster you know to grab the bit of to- the runner and pull it out and as she did it sort of things slowed down and <laughs> the reactions of my adult children were interesting to watch what reaction do you think they had at that point the inheritance is about to be ours. <laughs> no, they had this, there was, like, I was, I was quite shocked and surprised. We do this all the time. I was quite, quite shocked and surprised. There was this massive a moment of uh, fear for their mother. Mum, don't do that. And she's going, why? Why is this a problem? <laughs> and I offered, do you have a problem with hair dryers in the bath? What, like, what is it with you guys? But um, now, was fear at that point inappropriate? No, you don't stick metal things in toasters, even when they're not on, even if they're plugged in. You, am I right, electricians? You can kill yourself, right? Um, it's as much, it's the same as sticking it in actually to the PowerPoint itself. Very So fear, a fear is a very appropriate emotion, a good emotion to have in a context of a world where there are things to be afraid of. Fear is, a, we want to cultivate it in our children an appropriate fear and care and concern. Um, You know, uh, we need fear in the spiritual realm. Unambiguously, we need fear. Certainly, we need fear. Without a doubt. The Christian world has been keen, as I say, to throw off any talk of fear for Christians, but the Bible won't have it. Because... There are things to be afraid of this side of glory. And even, for some, the other side of glory. And whilst we live in that world where there are things to be afraid of, the Bible will speak to us, born-again believers, about the things to be afraid of. I want to show you how it works throughout this chapter. There's three sections I'm going to touch on. The first and third, very briefly... Uh, The middle one, verse 18 to 24, I want to spend more time on. But let me show you how fear plays out throughout this section. The first one there is in verse 15. Have a look at this, this is the first section. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What is that tapping into? The fear of falling away. This has been a thing, a theme throughout the whole book, chapter 2, chapter, chapter 3, chapter 6 and so on. Um, uh, the, the fear of drifting, the fear of sliding away, the fear of apostasy. He is deeply concerned to warn these Christians about the fear that they ought to have of the hardness of sin, the deceptiveness of sin, that it might harden their hearts and that they might be found without the covering of the grace of God. 
This has been all the way, because he's talking to a group of believers who are threatened by persecution without and there is the great danger that with all of that stress and tension they might drift out of the things of Christ and back into their Jewish faith that they'd had previously it seems. And he uses the illustration there of verse 16 of Esau who sold his inheritance, his birthrights for a single meal, who for the sake of the visible momentary pleasure gave up what was eternal and invisible. He sold his birthright. Um, And all of this is to trade on the great seriousness of the things of Christ. The things that we deal with, friends, in our context here today are not trivial. They're not light. They are heaven and hell. It matters. Take care. That's the first section. But then the second section, the larger section, that's larger middle section, uh, is uh, one we want to spend a little bit more time on. It's a focus on the extraordinary blessings that these believers have in Christ and the fear, I dare say, of losing it. I think that's what he's talking about through here. And we want to spend a little bit more time here. Um, So dig with me, verse 18, verse 22. You see the two paragraphs in your Bible, if you've got your Bible open in front of you. They reflect... Uh, an observation about two kinds of religious experience that he's going to talk to them about. The religious experience that he, he, he likens to the Mount Sinai experience, I'll talk to that in a moment, and the religious experience he likens to the Mount Zion, it's the two different mountains, the two different religious experiences. Um, and he compares these two different li- religious experiences by using this poetic imagery, which is very vivid, it's very powerful, uh, one that's hard to do justice to. The, the, the difference between Mount Sinai religious experience and Mount Zion. Now, these are two literal mountains. Uh, Mount Sinai uh, sits between Egypt and Jerusalem. Uh, it was the mountain that God brought Israel, ancient Israel, Two, when he brought them out of Egypt, out from under slavery with pharaohs. Do you remember that, the Exodus of experience? It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and following. Um, and God appeared to them on that mountain. And in fact, that's the place where God gave Israel the law, the Ten Commandments. Do you remember Moses? Some of you uh, may be familiar with these things. If you're new to the things of Christianity, this might, this might trigger something for you, the, the idea of Moses coming down from the mountain with the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. That's, the, that's this moment at Mount Sinai. And in many ways, Mount Sinai stands for the law, for God covenanting, agreeing with his people that he would be their God, they would be his people if they kept his law, if they were able to obey him. Mount Zion is a different mountain, another literal mountain, but it's a mountain that is one of the hills upon which Jerusalem's built. Uh, mountain, hill, it's, it's not a huge thing. Uh, and Jerusalem's built on this mountain. Um, and he talks about here, though, Mount Zion as not just the literal hill of Jerusalem, but actually as representative of a heavenly experience. And, and I want to take you through this. So two literal mountains, but he's using them poetically. And they stand for two different kinds of religious experience. Uh, the first religious experience was Israel under the Old Covenant. The second religious experience, Mount Zion, is Christians under the New Covenant, their experience. Now, the thing that stands out, one of the things that I think that stands out as you go through it, is different emotions attached to each mountain. Let me read them and see if we can work out the emotions. It's not hard. Let me do this with you. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, 
whereas in the past you did come to a mountain that was physical that could be touched, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. He's reflecting on Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 4. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an angel, even if an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Now, what's the emotion associated with this mountain? Fear. Very clear. Dark, terror, gloom, oppressive, fear. Terrifying. What's the emotion associated with the second mountain? Verse 22, you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the emotion associated with this mountain? Joy. Joy, celebration, freedom, acceptance, coming home. It's all of these kinds of things. There's much that's profound in this uh, poetry he uses, and uh, I haven't... I'd love to spend more time on it, but let me just pick up a few things, make some observations about the differences between these two experiences and then just apply it a little bit to us before doing a larger application. Does that make sense? You've got no clue. Let me just do it. Let me give you some observations. The first one, there's quite a difference between these two religious experiences. The first difference is that the new covenant experience in Jesus isn't coming to a physical place. And he makes that quite clear. He says, verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Like the ancient Israelites, the Jews came to a mountain. They came to a physical mountain you could touch. You have not come to a physical mountain. Verse 22, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to angels, thousands and thousands of them in joyful assembly. The point he's making is the difference between the Israelite experience under Mount Sinai and the one that happens in Jesus under the New Covenant is that you come home to the very home of God himself. In the Mount Sinai experience, God does come to earth, he comes to us, but he comes to us in all his holiness and fearsomeness and purity and there's a there's a presence of God with the people gathered around him and a distance from God, but he comes to earth. But what you have in the second experience, in the new covenant experience, is that a believer in the Lord Jesus is lifted up into the very home of God himself. God doesn't just come to us, he takes us with him to be where he is, in the heavenly Jerusalem, the very home where he belongs. There is a profound difference between those two covenants. The second difference that he talks about here is the eternal unshakable versus the shakable. Mount Sinai, the mountain that you came to under the old covenant, was a mountain that shook and it will be the heavens and the earth that will shake. It's transient, it's not solid, it's not substantial. But the mountain that we come to by Jesus, 
the mountain, verse 22, the, the living heavenly God, is a, is a, verse 28, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It, it's stable and secure, forever, eternal. And there's a difference between the words that are spoken in these two mountains, these two religious experiences. In the first religious experience, the Mount Sinai religious experience, you come to a word that terrifies, a word that speaks such a word that Moses and the people say, no more, stop speaking to us. But when you come to Mount Zion, the religious experience there, verse 24, is that you come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a word that speaks in Mount Zion, and it's a word that is the blood of Jesus speaking, and it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now think with me about that. What's the word the blood of Abel speaks? Now again, if you don't know much about the Christian uh, Old Testament, let me give you a quick... Abel is one of the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain hates Abel. Cain kills Abel. Uh, he is murdered by his jealous brother. And Abel's blood cries out from the ground to God. What does it cry out from the ground to God? What does it say to God, cry out to God to do? Wreak justice and vengeance on Cain. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and justice against the perpetrator of such a crime. Yes? What's the blood of Jesus cry out from the grave? Forgive them, Father. Have mercy on them. Receive them, sinners though they are. The blood of Abel speaks vengeance, justice. The blood of Jesus speaks grace, love, mercy, kindness, acceptance. It's a better word. And this is how you come to this city, actually. How is it that you come to Mount Zion and not Sinai? You come to Mount Zion by the blood of Jesus, by the mediator of a new covenant, by the work of Jesus whose death and resurrection makes it possible for you to be cleansed and forgiven, brought into the very home of God himself, covered by the merits and goodness of Jesus. See, there's some differences that function in these two mountains and these two religious experiences. More to be said in a moment. But just one other further observation about this experience. The experience of coming to Mount Zion. Notice verse 22, the tense. You have come to Mount Zion. Not you will one day come or that you might come, but that you have come. Now reflect with me on the significance of that. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come. By the blood of Jesus, by the mediatory work of Jesus himself who covers our sin. What does that say? What it says is that you seated here now, if you have your faith in the Lord Jesus, if you look to him as your Lord and Saviour, you are now seated here, and seated in the heavenlies. You know, there's poetry in all of this, of course. He's using the two mountains as a way to kind of figuratively capture two kinds of religion. We'll come to that in a moment. But there's literalism as well. It's, it's capturing up what other books of the New Testament talk about, say Colossians chapter 3, that with the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven by the work of the Holy Spirit of God, 
believers in Jesus are united to that same Jesus so that with his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, you ascend with him. You are placed in Jesus, united with Jesus, so that where he is, you are. Which means whilst he is the right hand of the Father, you're at the right hand of the Father. In spirit. You are spiritually seated there now. That is who you are. And this is an extraordinary truth that has incredible implications. Um, What it tells you is a number of things. God is about gathering and assembling you to himself. He did that in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai gathered Israel to himself, the great church, Acts 7 of the Old Testament. But he is about fulfilling that assembly in this more perfect assembly by the blood of Jesus to be assembled around God in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's where you are now. Brother and sister in Christ, you are a gathered one. You are assembled right at this moment. You are assembled with thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You're part of that. Secured there by the blood of Jesus. You have been gathered to the church of the firstborn, to the inheritor, Jesus. You you have been gathered to all other believers down through history, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have been gathered to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks a word to you of grace and mercy and acceptance. You are there now, which has massive implications for church today. You see, why do we church? Why do we assemble here on a Sunday? Well, lots of reasons. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 tells us we gather to love. One of the reasons we're to gather together is because it's an expression of us loving one another, to stir one another on, to help each other press forward in the things of Christ. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells you the reason you gather. You gather because you are gathered. You gather because the great purpose of God is to gather you around his throne and that invisible reality, you can't see it, the invisible reality of us being gathered around the things of Christ is to be given visible expression every week as we turn up here today. So in a real sense, this physical gathering exists because of that invisible eternal one and it reflects and expresses that it's the break. You know, in in heaven there is this... There is this ongoing celebration of the victory of Christ in his death and resurrection to redeem sinners, Revelation chapter 1. And that eternal celebration, you can have a taste of it now. You can have a taste of it every Sunday when we put flesh on that invisible reality by our visible gathering. Do you see what you are? This is not just another social group. This is an expression of eternity being seen in the physical tangible. That is why it matters that you gather. Now, we've had a stream. It's been wonderful to have a stream, to be able to not have to gather and yet still be able to be encouraged by the word and so on. And we do want to keep saying if you're sick, if you find there are circumstances where you just can't get to church, if there's a, there's a kind of an anxiety you have about crowds, we're more alert to this, then having the stream is a fantastic blessing and make use of it, don't feel guilty about it. But it is very second rate. It's watching the visible assembly, it's not participating in it. And we want you to know the joy of participating in this great celebration. It is part of who we are to gather week by week, to give expression. This is what the preacher's doing to these believers. He's saying, don't give up assembling. 
because of the wonder and greatness and glory of what you do. But I'll tell you what the bigger point is. If you walk away from Jesus, he says, all you've got is a return to gloom, darkness and oppression. Mount Sinai. That's what you'd be going back to. You'd be walking away from life and celebration of the new covenant, back to darkness. Be afraid of going back there. Now, in a sense, what he's teaching here is something that's more general than just uh, Jesus versus Judaism, Old Testament covenant. He's doing a little bit more than that. I want to suggest he's giving a lesson about Jesus and every other religion in the world. Because what I want to suggest he's doing is that Mount Sinai corresponds to a certain way of approaching God. Mount Zion corresponds to a certain way of approaching God that are general. Mount Sinai, what's the way of approaching God that it's captivating, capturing? It's capturing the idea of coming to God by rule-keeping. Mount Sinai stands for works religion. Any religion that depends on my efforts to please God, to earn my way, that's what he's teaching, I think. And here's the deal. Mount Sion, Mount, Mount Sinai, stand, every, Judaism, yes, the Ten Commandments, what I do to get to God. But Islam, is Mount Sinai. Islam, the five pillars that you have to obey to earn your way. Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhism, the eightfold path that you have to keep to make your way to Nirvana. Every religion can be captured up under Mount Sinai. You do, you perform, you earn your way. You know, religions are all different, but at heart, they're all the same. It's all about me and what I have to do. There's only one religion on the planet through human history that is different to Mount Sinai. And it's the Christian religion, the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus. It's grace given to the unworthy. And the way of law keeping is always the way of fear. Because everything depends on me. My performance, my ability to pull it off, whether I can do enough, have I done enough, have I prayed enough, have I loved enough, have I served enough, have I given enough money. Living that kind of life before God is oppressive, it's debilitating, it's destructive, it's dark. God becomes a taskmaster that I've got to impress to make it in the last day. It's living with a parent or a spouse or a friend who's never happy enough who you can never please. There's little to celebrate. There's no cause for joy because I don't know yet whether I've done enough to pass. And so I live with fear and anxiety. In the life with God, it always feels like there's an exam, an exam to come. You know, not, where have I done enough to pass? Fear and anger. Do you live with that? Are you living with that kind of fear? It's possible that you can sit in church that's meant to be a Mount Zion experience and really be coming to Mount Sinai, thinking it's about law-keeping. Mount Zion is grace. Someone sits the exam for you and gives you their marks. It's the message of this book, that someone pays your penalty in your place. 
They pour out their blood, the great sacrifice of God's only son, whose blood is sufficient to pay for all your sin. His blood is poured out to cleanse you to your very soul so that your conscience is cleansed, so that you can stand before God, not because you're worthy, but because he has been worthy for you. He has covered you and stands to plead your case as your great high priest, forgiven the stamp of the new covenant, so that you are received in acceptance. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not you might, but you are there by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Two mountains stand for two different ways to approach God. Mount Sinai is the way of perform, do, do enough, keep the standard. And that mountain stands for every religion except the religion of Jesus. And I tell you what, even if you're irreligious, it stands for you. You know, uh, the media make much these days of how the world is uh, changing and uh, giving up on religion and Christianity particularly. Um, but it hasn't changed the fact that people still think about a relationship with God as Mount Sinai. Let me illustrate this. I have this conversation every now and then with people. Um, I, I say to a person I, I know, I've met, do you believe there's a God? My friend says, yes. I say, do you think he'll accept you when you die? My friend says, I believe as long as you're good, you'll be accepted. And I say, have you always been good? And they say, well, no, not really, but I try to be good. And I say, oh, so the standard's not being good, it's trying to be good. Have you always tried to be good? And they say, well, no, not actually, but I've tried to try to be good. And I say, have you always tried? You can see where this goes, can't you? Um, but I want to try sometimes to... What really is left of all of this? I don't know. I want to stop the conversation. That's how my conversations tend to go. Um, I then point to Jesus and say, have you ever considered the things of Jesus and who he is and what he's done? Because he gives a whole different way. Do you know, whatever standard you have, whether it's the Ten Commandments, high moral standards, acting justly, not like being like Donald Trump, being someone who's about causes and against, whatever standard you have, you'll have broken it. You'll have broken it. The reason do religions, performance religions, are full of fear is you can't keep them. And when you actually think about it, standing for God on the basis of your life is terrifying. Do you know Mount Sinai? Why were they so terrified? I'll offer this thought. It's because they were actually brought face to face with the living God. With the God who is a consuming fire. Not the God of our imaginations, not the God who's the Santa in the sky, not the God who's the grandfather who's indulgent, and not that God, but the God who is just and holy and pure in his perfections, whose eyes are too pure to even look upon sin. The great creator of the all things, they came face to face with that God. And they were terrified by it. Because in light of that glorious splendour, their sin shone with all its horror. And they were broken. As is every person who has had a true experience of the living God. Do you know, we have um, 
We have modern spiritualists, people who are into spirituality, who talk about having had an experience of God and it's always for them warm and tolerant and loving and accepting. Well, I would offer that because you haven't actually had a relation, you haven't had an experience of the living God, you've had an experience of the God of your own imagination. Every time a person in the Bible has an experience of living God, Moses, the burning bush, this ground is holy ground. Isaiah chapter 6 who has a vision of the Lord lifted up high and mighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And Moses' reaction, he falls down as though dead. Woe is me, he says, for I have seen the Lord, the Holy One, and I'm a sinner amongst a group of people with unclean lips. Peter, at the transfiguration of Jesus, is left speechless. John, the apostle in Revelation chapter 1, when he has a revelation of the risen Lord Jesus, falls down as though dead because he sees Jesus in all his glory. Brothers and sisters, the Mount Sinai is terrifying because when sinners come uncovered before God to be seen for who they are in the light of God's glory, it is devastating. It is terrifying. What hope then for sinners? None via that path. The only hope is the new covenant. The new covenant where Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, comes to establish a whole new way in all of human history, a whole new way, a way of grace, a way for people who say, I can't do it. He says, I have done it. He enters the most holy place by his own blood and so obtains an eternal redemption. Chapter 9, his blood makes possible the cleansing of our consciences from every sin that, pure, that impure, that destroys and darkens. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died and set us free from sins committed under the first covenant, he has appeared to do away with sin once for all, by the sacrifice of himself. And so we are free. Brought into the very city of God, the home of God himself, to live forever in an unshakable kingdom. By the gift of forgiveness. His merit, not mine. No wonder this mountain is full of celebration. And no wonder those of us who know this truth, should be full of love, gratitude and celebration. We ought to sing with gladness, rejoicing with the angels at what God has achieved. But at the risk of banging away on this a little bit longer, it is possible to sit in church, a church that's the Mount Zion church, that knows grace and grace alone. It's possible to sit in that kind of church as someone who is still coming Mount Sinai, who is still coming by law-keeping. How do you know that's you? It's partly because you'll be sitting there thinking, I don't feel that joy. I don't have any sense of celebration. Why not? Because I live under fear. The fear of I've done enough. Have I performed enough? There is no hope that way. And I would urge you to come and see what Jesus has done for you. How do, how do you come? How do you come to Jesus? You come to him by owning up to your failure to be good enough 
having the humility to recognize you are a sinner, whatever standard you set, you're going to break it. There's no way that way. To recognize that Jesus is our great high priest, the great sacrifice, who's fulfilled all the Old Testament expectations and demands. He's kept the law for us. He's died to pay the penalty for us, to give us forgiveness, to enthrow yourself on his mercy and say, Lord, let you now be my Lord and let me now entrust myself to you and your rule as the merciful saviour and he'll receive you cover your sin cleanse your soul and bring you into this very city of god when you bow the knee to jesus as lord and saviour there's joy because there's freedom well is there still though any place for fear amongst those who are forgiven sinners well no and yes No, whilst ever you are under the covering of the blood of Christ, whilst ever you walk with him as your Lord and Saviour, cleansed, forgiven, accepted, received, love casts out fear. But yes, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. This is addressed to repentant believers and it's the author, the sermon, the preacher saying to Christians, born again believers, don't presume that you can presume on God. Take heed to his word and his words of warning that you might not drift. Be alert to the fact that your heart is deceptive. Sin is deceptive. You can grow hardened by it over time and roots of bitterness can grow up if you don't keep soft to the word of God. And be alert to the fear of what it is to be lost outside of Christ. And be fearful that you might not be found there that you continue to press on actively in the things of Christ and so serve him with reverence and awe. Be careful. And so let me urge us to take stock this morning. There are so many things that happen in our lives as we journey towards the final consummation of our hope that we have already because we're wandering through the wilderness towards this promised land. Take stock of the things that could grow up in your life to dampen your readiness to heed God's voice. Are there habits in your life, practices, sins that are taking root, that are cooling your desire to walk with Jesus as Lord and Saviour? Is that happening? It might be a sin. It might be uh, a, a, a practice. An act. It might be your internet life is, is now... Um, quietly and secretly producing a sin that you know is building up in your life and causing you to be less prayerful and causing you to less, be less warm to the things of Christ. Be warned. If you lose Jesus, you've lost everything. Do not be like Esau who, who is, in, is enticed by the visible and so gives up the invisible hope. That is the eternal hope. You'll lose your soul. Is it a relationship at work or in a sports club where married you are but you're beginning to flirt or connect relationally that you know is problematic? Cut it out. 
Don't let anything hinder being soft to the Word of God. It might be the number of holidays you're taking. It might be that you're so often tripping away, you actually aren't gathering with the visible expression of the invisible church weekly. Don't assume that sin will not grab you. Be alert to the deceitfulness of sin. If you think you stand firm, take care lest you fall. Be with God's people weekly, as long as it's called today, encourage one another. Our only hope is Christ. Outside of him is complete loss. There is no cause for fear in Christ, except that our Lord is a consuming fire and we're to worship him with reverence and awe. But there is fear that you might fall and to pay attention to that is important. Let me finish though with a couple of words. Let me finish with his words. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful. There's much to be warned about. Take heed to the warning. But if you are someone who has come to Mount Zion through the blood of Jesus, then listen to this. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because the God, the God who is just, is satisfied to look on him and not me. Rejoice and celebrate with the angels. And take heed to your soul as we move through this world towards that great consummation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us do exactly these things. Take heed. And in the midst of, of the warnings and the care, celebrate. Give thanks for the joy that we have in being forgiven, cleansed, purified by the redeeming work of Christ. We thank you that the sinless Saviour has died and by his death we are cleansed and purified. Thank you that you look on him and not on us, that we are now members of this heavenly city together with all the angels and the saints in generations past, that we've come to the Lord Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks such a good word. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.